Heavenly Father, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for being sovereign, being Lord. You never change. You never weary. You never weary of us. You're constant. You're powerful. You're mighty. You're gracious. You are sovereign. You are king. And Lord, we plead with you to still our hearts. As Janet likes to say, sweep out our hearts. Sweep out the cobwebs, Lord. Let us be alert. Let us be ready to receive what you have for us today. Let us walk away from here, from today, changed women, more determined to glorify you in our lives, in our thoughts, in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. Can everybody hear me? Okay, it's a big room and... um, Sounds good? All right, thank you. Well, let's turn our binders over, as we always do, and review the Wellspring purposes and disciplines together. You're going to need a pen in just a minute. Okay, discipline one. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So let me begin, Christian, by asking us this question. What does your regenerated heart need more than anything else? Our answers may vary a little bit from sister to sister, but I'm sure there's something along these lines. What my regenerated heart needs more than anything else is to meet with the God of the word. You see, a godly woman, we understand, right, that we're still in a mixed condition. We love God and we want our hearts to come closer to God of the word when we meet with him, and that's what discipline 1 is all about. And that's what makes the difference between the lady who just shows up to church on Sunday And the woman who's going to be used by God in the lives of others. There are no exceptions, are there? You and I are called to be godly women. Who know that we have to bring ourselves, our hearts, to the word of God, don't we? Every day, right? No days off, right? So next is discipline to the home or the household relationships. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and for the gospel. See, when you step into this woman's home, there's an aroma of Christ there. It's a place where people are, what? They're loved. It's a place where people are encouraged. But here's the key. They're not just encouraged by you, but they're encouraged by you as you tell them the word of God. See the difference? And what Christ has done on the cross. 
So our living situation, they're all different from each other. But you know what? Each of our homes, no matter what they're like, each of our homes can be used by God in a mighty way, can't they? You do this, how? How do you do it? You do it by showing others the impact that the gospel has made on your heart, on your life, and on your love for others. That's how you do it. So finally, let's consider discipline three. With the heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. See, this woman is now equipped effectively to step into others' lives, believers and unbelievers, with the gospel of Christ wherever she goes. See, that's why we always start with discipline one, right? And we say to ourselves, I need to be a woman who shepherds my heart well. I need to be that kind of woman because that kind of woman will have something to say about the gospel. I want to be that kind of woman. And I know you want to be that kind of woman too. So now here come some questions that we should all be asking ourselves. So here's the first one. To what degree is this actually happening on my life or in my life on a consistent basis? You need to be asking yourself that. And then as you're looking, I want you to look where you can be encouraged. I don't want you to just ah, go around poor me, but I want you to be encouraged. And then I want you to think and look at your life and think of areas where you can and where you should improve. And um, what it is that you must start doing or stop doing so that the Word of God has prominence, has dominance in your life. See, you should ask yourself these questions. We all should. So let's do a little exercise, shall we, to make the disciplines and the purpose a little bit more meaningful and more personal to us. So if you um, look down on your outline now, you're going to notice um, some blanks. And what we did was we took out all the third persons, all the he, she's, and I want you to fill in, um, fill it in and put I or me. So, for instance, the first one, if we do the purpose, we'll do that together. So it would be to equip and encourage me to shepherd my heart toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that I live a gospel-transformed life, thus strengthening the church with its gospel purpose. All right, I'll give you just a, a minute to do the rest, and then we're going to read them to each other. All right, you ready? Let's read them out loud to each other. Let's start with discipline one, okay? 
my heart. I prayerfully shepherd my heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Good. Discipline two, my home. I minister to those in my household with my heart for God and the gospel. Discipline three, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling my ministry within my household, I step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Makes a a bit of a difference, doesn't it? Yeah. If we're going to be women who are useful for the kingdom of God, living gospel-transformed lives, ladies, we will be women who prioritize our lives so that we're living the disciplines by God's grace, not under our own power, right? That's why my daily priority and your daily priority must be that we have to center our lives around the word of God. We must. But here's the question. How can we be sure that we're allowing what we read in the Bible to make a lasting change? So here's another way to say it. What must our mindset be as we approach our Bible reading? I think you know the answer by now because you're Wellspring women. See, we can all benefit from doing inventory in this area too. Now I'm going to share something for us to think about. And we've heard this analogy before, but I want you to think about it anew. In our lives, whenever we have a question or we need some information, right? In the old days, we'd have to get out the old encyclopedias, dust them off, hope that they're up to date. But in this day and age, it's so easy, right? We grab our phones or we go online. You have a question, look it up, okay? Do a safari search, go on Google, go on Wikipedia, do Encyclopedia Britannica. There's so many ways. And of course, books, you don't have to read the entire pages and pages. You don't have to read the whole thing, right? You just read what you need, and then you move on. Just a paragraph or a sentence. So the quote on your outline by Paul David Tripp, let me direct your attention to that now because he addresses that. This is a really good quote about understanding the Bible and making it clear the mindset that we should be in as we approach our Bible reading. And it's from Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, that is how scripture differs from an encyclopedia, or in my case, a Wikipedia. When I use an encyclopedia, I do not need to read other articles to understand the one I'm reading at the moment. One article has no connection to another. There are no overarching themes. In the Bible, however... Every passage is dependent on the whole, and the whole Bible is held together by interdependent themes that run together, I'm sorry, that run through every passage, like rebar, the steel bars that reinforce concrete. These themes give me a sense of identity, purpose, and direction that will fundamentally alter the way I think desire, speak, and act. The sad fact is that many of us are simply not biblical in the way we use the Bible. 
that's interesting, isn't it? Not biblical in the way we use the Bible. Well, what's he mean? Let's, let's keep reading, okay? Being biblical does not mean merely quoting words from its pages. Being truly biblical means that my counsel reflects. What does it reflect? What the entire Bible is about. The Bible is a narrative. It's a story of redemption. And its chief character is Jesus Christ. He is the main theme of the narrative. And he is revealed in every passage of the book. Lasting change begins, here it is, when our identity, purpose, and sense of direction are defined by God's story. That gives us something to think about tomorrow morning, right, when we're in the Word again. So here's an outline. It says, um, next on your outline, it says an illustration. I shared this with you last year, so some of you may remember this. This is my own kind of twist on an illustration we've heard before. You heard it earlier this year. But I love it because it drives home so well what we're after when we talk about Discipline 1. So I want you to be imagining with me now. We're going to hear a story. And I want you to imagine that I invited you. It's winter. And I invited you to come with me. We're going to go up north. We're going to go to Pine Top. And we're going to go cross-country skiing, okay? So we get in our cars. We drive. We're going to spend the whole day skiing. And then at night, we're going to head on to a cabin, the huge fireplace. Got everything we need. Our family is waiting for us there. We're going to have hot chocolate, have a fire, just hang out. It's going to be great. Okay, so we get there. We pull up to the parking place. There's no other cars. Hey, we're the only ones here. It's going to be cool, right? The snow is pristine. We start going. Feels good. Hey, we see a squirrel. See a chipmunk. See the snow, and it's shining on the leaves. Beautiful. And we're talking about Jesus. We're having a great time. And we get to the end. And it's time to turn around. So we turn around and start heading back. And we're already thinking, right? Ah, warm fire, hot chocolate, family. Maybe we'll play a game together. Fun. Well, what happens in the winter and, and then mountain weather? What happens? Snow. Sometimes the weather can change just like that. And that's what happens in our story. So here we go. All of a sudden, the wind starts picking up. And that snow that's on the ground starts hitting us in our faces. Sting, sting, ouch, ouch. And it's hurting. And so we kind of have to shut our eyes and we trudge ahead. And then angrily those clouds unleash everything they've been holding, all their snow. And now it's snowing and it's windy and we can't see where we're going. And we put our heads down and we're just trudging, but we have lost all sense of direction. We are kind of in trouble. But we keep going thinking, we got to keep going. So now it's starting to get dark, and we're exhausted. And you know what? My toes are starting to get numb, and so are yours. And I, I stopped feeling my fingers long ago. And it's totally dark, and we've lost all sense of direction. And now we're starting to think questions like, what should we do? Should we just stay? Because every step we take, who knows where we're going? Should we stay and try to maybe build a little 
snow fort for us? Is our family worrying about us? How are they even going to know where we are? We're thinking those questions. Are we going to survive the night? And was that a wolf I just heard? <laughs> and so you decide, you take control and you go, you know what, I'm going to build us a, a snow fort. I've seen that on, on Survivor or something. I've seen it. So I'm going to build it for us. We're going to huddle in and at least we'll be warm. And as I, or as you're building that, you take you a puzzled look comes on your face. And you're looking at me and you're saying, what is that glow from your hand? Oh, it's nothing, I say. It's just my iPhone. You know, I thought I'd play a quick game of words with friends and maybe um, listen to some music to help you start building our snow fort, keep you going. Isn't that ridiculous? See, the whole time I had my iPhone and it has its own hotspot, so it has internet. And it has a compass right on it and a flashlight. And it has great reception, all four bars. This phone is the one means to the one end. And that is contacting a rescuer, our rescuer, right? How foolish of me would it be and is it for me to be playing with it? See, I cherish it, don't I? I'm supposed to guard it and cherish it and use it correctly. Using it to play a game is foolishness. Okay, do you know where I'm going with this illustration? I know we don't play games with our Bible, but listen to the correlation. This phone puts us in contact with our rescuer just like the Bible puts us in contact with our rescuer. So instead of interacting, interacting with our rescuer, what do we sometimes do when we pick up the Bible? We read it in such a way sometimes that we're not interacting. See, it's not okay to come to our Bible to get the right answers, just to know more, just to find that one verse that my girlfriend really needs today, or just to help me win a theological argument. See, all those things do have their place. They do. But that's not discipline one. That's the difference. So if you're going to write down anything in your notes right there, it should be something like this. The word of God is precious, but reading it daily is not the ultimate goal. God is. I'm going to say that again. The word of God is precious, but reading it daily is not the ultimate goal. God is. See, your daily time in the Word is for you to be in contact with your rescuer. Definitely. If you have a thought, an idea, a Bible verse, jot it down so you, you don't forget. And then get right back and prayerfully focus your attention on why you're there. Discipline one is all about getting our heart near our rescuer. 
our deliverer, our savior. Why is that so important? Because to truly know God, ladies, to truly know God, you've got to know him as he is, as he has revealed himself, where? In scripture, right? Not, and this is how we do it sometimes, how we imagine him to be. And you know we forget. So we've got to know how he reveals himself in scripture. So I have some more questions. Here's the first one. We've heard this before, so don't let it just be like white noise. Think about it so it doesn't lose its impact. Do you come to the word of God with the intent to know the God of the word? Number one, go to the word of God with the intent to know the God of the word. And then cherish your time with your precious and mighty Savior. It's not the first job you've got to get done in the morning. It's a time to cherish. And finally, do you keep right here in the forefront of your mind what your one goal must be? You've got to. You're a forgetter just like I am. It's to know God. And so the Bible is very precious because it's our one means to our one goal, right? And you know, we must not neglect God's word the way I misused and neglected the iPhone in the story. We cherish it. We love it. We honor it, right? Because it's how we draw near to our rescuer, Jesus Christ. And at Grace Bible Church, we all want to be known as women who are all about God's word. And that's good. Be all about God's word. But if we leave it right there, guess what? We've fallen short, ladies. So let's be concerned to be women who know the God of the word, okay? Let's pray. Lord, knowing that we are forgetful, and we deceive ourselves. We need you. And we're so thankful that you have given us your Holy Spirit to remind us, to guide us, to counsel us. And you've given us your word so that there are no questions who you are and what you're all about. And Lord, as we open our Bibles every day, let us stop. Just stop us in our tracks and help us shepherd our minds, our hearts, to the fact that we get to know you more. And when we're done reading, help us to remind ourselves what we learned today so that we know you better, so that we can take that into our lives. And as we have trouble, that we think rightly about it, we think biblically about it, knowing who you are. Thank you, God. And we pray in your Son, Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, here's another story. I, I'm all, I love stories. Here's another one, but this one is true. This happened April 14th, 1912. Can you think about what may have happened back then? 1912. It was numbingly cold. Yep, Titanic. It was the third day of the Titanic's maiden voyage. Here's another numbingly cold story. (laughs) 
The water's temperature was hovering at about 28 degrees Fahrenheit. I found that on Wikipedia. <laughs> Around noon that day, the Titanic's wireless operators received the, the first of at least four cautionary messages about really large ice flows ahead. And then the second message came at 5.35 p.m. from a ship that reported three icebergs just 19 miles north of Titanic. And then one hour before the Titanic's collision. Okay, so now it's 11.40 p.m., dark, cold. A vessel named the Californian message to the Titanic. We are surrounded by ice. Now those wireless operators, whoever it was that received that message, said this. Shut up, I'm busy. Can you believe it? The threat of the ice was just brushed off. And it wasn't just that operator who discounted the message. Captain Smith, he was also unconcerned. After all, you know what? Titanic, solid steel, unsinkable. His only concern was shattering speed records that were set by the other steamers. That's his concern. Now, a guy, I love his name, Frederick Leet. Great name for a guy on a ship, right? He was in the observation port, and he was nearing the end of his shift. Okay, and he's looking through his binoculars, and then he sees it. He spies the foretold iceberg, and he sounds the alarm, and he calls down to the bridge. First officer, William M. Murdoch, shut off all the engines, and he dropped the watertight doors in the bottom compartments. And he, here's the iceberg, he turned the ship away from its forward front end so that the iceberg hit the side. Now, Murdoch reacted as well as he could in the face of danger. But the Titanic, it was too late. He didn't have enough time to stop, to make a complete stop before it hit that iceberg. That's because stopping the ship would have taken 2,600 feet, and they were only 900 feet from the Titanic. Yikes, right? So for a few minutes, it seemed, though, as if that maneuver might have worked and that the ship did miss the iceberg, right? But what's going on underneath the surface? Underneath, a protruding fragment of ice ripped a hole through the Titanic's hull. And it was nearly 300 feet wide. Can you imagine? And Murdoch's hasty navigation actually steered the ship from um, the sturdiest place to withstand impact, would have been the front, to one of the most vulnerable places. And that caused those catastrophic results. And in an hour and a half, the Titanic would sink to the watery bottom of the Atlantic. What is it about icebergs that makes them so dangerous? Is it the part you can see or the part you can't see? Okay, you all know, you're all on science, probably fourth grade, I don't know. Do you know how much is above the water? Do you know? About 10%. So that means that 90% of it is below the surface of the water. You can't see, you don't know how deep it is, how wide it is. It's undetected, it's 
it's undetected and it's unseen. And uh, you know that part over up above that's called the tip of the iceberg and we use that in our language all the time. Oh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That, that means it's only a small manifestation of a much larger problem. Sisters in Christ, that's exactly what the rest of our lesson today is all about. So we're going to learn and we're going to see how we must not ignore the tip of the iceberg. We're going to walk through that together so that we can identify it in our own lives. Because, you know, there are dangerous elements in our own lives lurking underneath the surface, and we've got to steer ourselves away from those dangerous elements. We've got to. We've got to steer them away from it, but we've got to steer them to Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look specifically at what the Word of God has to say about a prideful heart. We're going to learn to identify the danger to which pride exposes the heart to. How pride can damage us and all those around us, not only us, just like the iceberg damaged the Titanic. Another question. Do you think of yourself as a prideful person? You know, at first glance, that's usually not what I think about myself. I know I'm prideful, don't get me wrong, but that's not like number one on my list. Are you good at spotting pride? I bet you are. I bet you can identify it when you see it in others, right? <laughs> yeah, same as me, because we're good at spotting it in others. We are so good. Um, another thing about pride is, you know what, it's a lot easier to identify it than it is to define it. Because what, what pride means to me might not be what pride means to you, and most importantly, might not be what pride is in the Bible, what it means to God. And because we're experts at defining sin, in terms of others, you know what we do? We're careful to exclude ourselves. We just are. And that's why in Wellspring, we always review those disciplines. We review the condition of our heart over and over again because, you know it, our hearts are prone to deceive, aren't they? And you know what else? They're prone to be deceived. They're prone to deceive and being deceived. And here's our dilemma. So first of all, we know we have to watch out for wrong kind of thinking. But just because we're warned doesn't mean we're always going to heed the warnings. You know that. I know that. Just like the operator and the captain on the Titanic. Though I know we all want to avert that kind of tragedy in our own lives. So, okay, let's do everything we can to just be sharp and alert and watchful for the whole rest of the lesson, okay? Because guess what? This lesson is for you. And it's not for your friend or the person you wish you could have brought here this morning. It's for us. So I'm here to tell you something. God is very vocal. And he's very concerned about pride in our hearts. He is. So let's look at number two on your outline, page two. The danger to which pride exposes the heart. 
So on your outline, you're going to see some verses that we're going to be looking at today. But we're not going to just look at those verses. We're going to take it a step further, okay? We're going to ham it up. Okay, so um, we always have a ham application after each Bible verse. And ham stands for how about me, H-A-M, okay? We're sure that we've got to apply what we learn to ourselves. Instead of thinking, oh, that's for my husband, or that's for my friend, or that's for my boss. So let's begin with Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. This is Moses. And, you know, Deuteronomy is all Moses talking and giving instruction. When the, um, and this is Moses giving instructions when Israel has a king in the future. So I'm going to start at verse 18. Now it shall come when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. I want you to remember that part, in the presence of the Levitical priests, and that he's to read it all the days of his life. We're going to see that played out by carefully observing all the words of these laws of this law and these statutes. Okay, verse 20. Here it is. So that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Okay. I don't want us to miss this. So let's review real quick. What's he to do? He's to write a copy of what? The law. Okay. All by himself? Nope. In the presence of the Levitical priests. And then that law is to be in his presence. And he's supposed to read it all the days of his life. Why? Here's the important part. So that he'll learn to fear the Lord through obedience. He'll learn to fear the Lord through obedience. And what's the benefit of doing this? Such a benefit, ladies. It's the word that's going to protect him from lifting his heart above his countrymen, above others, in arrogance, in pride, and from thinking, I'm better than all the rest of you. He needs God's word. Where? Where does he need it? Close to his heart. Why? So that he doesn't exempt himself from the same standard that everyone else has to live by. He needs to remember he has to live by that same standard. The king, okay, the great king of Israel was to be on level ground with everybody else. And what is going to do the leveling, ladies? God's law, right? God's word. God's revelation of himself. Let's not miss that. See, the word is what will prevent him from lifting his heart high above others. 
Are you ready for some ham? How about me? Do I realize that I will exalt myself? I will. Without a steady diet of God's word, do I realize that I will start thinking somebody else needs God's word more than I do? See, without a steady diet of God's word, oh, I'm going to start telling myself things like, she, she needs small group. He needs church. You know, my friend, she really needs to go online and listen to that sermon. Or he needs to memorize that Bible verse. That would do him some good. Or they, they, need, they need to serve. Or that person over there needs the word of God more than I do right now. See, it's always somebody else, somebody else, somebody else without a steady diet of God's word, we might have a tendency to exempt ourselves. As if, you know what, there's some kind of exemption clause for us. Do we realize that the one thing that prevents our hearts from lifting ourselves above others is the word of God? That's it. It's the one thing. And so we must continually expose our hearts, ourselves, to the God's word. Let me say that again. We must continually expose ourselves to God's word. And please don't miss this at a heart level. It's what it's all about. The great leveler of us all is God's word. So let's go on now to Proverbs 16.5, and we're going to see what Solomon, Israel's third king, proclaimed about the heart. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Friends, God's word is sure, isn't it? It's certain. That's his sure and certain response to pride. In Proverbs 16, 5, Solomon is revealing to his son, who's the heir to the throne, what God thinks about arrogance in the heart. Here it is. Everyone who is proud in heart is actually what? an abomination to the Lord. All right, let's linger. Let's stop. Let's think. See, you know that word abomination? We don't use it that much anymore in our vocabulary. And it's not that abominable snowman in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Abomination um, has some synonyms I looked up, and here they are. Atrocity. Repugnant disgraceful, loathsome, disgusting. So knowing this, let's revisit Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. 
so you could not state God's disapproval and reaction of arrogance in your heart any stronger than that, could you? God's response is not uncertain. It is not unclear, and it's not wishy-washy. Assuredly, they will not go unpunished. Now, what I'm about to say is heavy, and yet it's so wonderful, and we know this. So I'm going to remind you. As Christians, this means that God's Son was punished. Assuredly, they shall not go unpunished. He was punished by God the Father for our arrogance. Wow. Christ willingly became an abomination, a disgrace, disgusting, loathsome because of our arrogance. Wow. Thank you, God. How about me? Do I preach those gospel realities to myself, to my heart? Do I let them turn me away from that arrogance for which Christ suffered and died? I must. You must. And we must do it often. Next in our outline is Hosea 13. So you're going to find the book of Daniel, and then you're going to find Hosea. Hosea 13. And we're going to read a very clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel during the time of the Exodus and those wilderness wanderings. Hosea chapter 13, verses 4 through 6 say, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior beside me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But now in verse 6, we're going to see a step-by-step descent in the morals and in worship. And they had their pasture, and they became satisfied, and their heart became proud. See the descent? And they forgot me. Do you remember he even warned them against that in Deuteronomy 8? 11 through 20, remember we did that in our homework this week. And we saw it in the survey of the home lesson. And now we're learning that the root of that forgetfulness is pride. That's the root. Tip of the iceberg, forgetfulness, root, pride. How about me? Do I see the dangerous Do I see how dangerous a prideful heart is? Now, exactly why is a prideful heart so dangerous? You have it. Here it is in a nutshell. A prideful heart is dangerous because it leads to forgetfulness. And I'm talking about a certain kind of forgetfulness, not any kind, not like I forgot my car keys. And it's not forgetting about ourselves. Oh, no, we never forget about ourselves. It's divine forgetfulness, right? We forget God. Yikes. None of us is exempt. None. You see, there's danger inherent in our satisfaction with being comfortable. We've talked about that. With having God's provision and with being 
satisfied with life. Watch out. You have to watch out for your heart at that time. Because you know what? That's when your heart becomes proud. And that's when your heart forgets God. And please, please don't be fooled into thinking, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Because I've actually thought that. You know what? We must recognize that none of us is exempt from forgetting God. And there's never a day that I don't have to watch for it. How about you? How about me? It's so easy for us, isn't it, to cry out to God when things are hard, right? We've said that in our relationships, you know, with our families or hard with our finances or with our health. Those trials, they help us see the Lord, right? They do. But what, what must we do to be just as intentional about seeking the Lord when we're comfortable? What must we do? Here's what we must do. We must bring our hearts before the word of God because God is the only one that can keep us mindful of our constant, ongoing need for himself. And he does this through his word. That's how he does it, primarily. So in Hosea 13, we saw one way that pride shows up in our hearts, in our lives. We forget God. Of course, you know what? We don't like to call it that, do we? We don't. I don't forget God, right? I, I, I get busy, okay? I'm going to clean it up. And you know, before I notice it, before I know it, I use that excuse, busyness. I make it sound less offensive. That's why I use that word. I use the excuse of busyness for forgetting God and for not meeting with God in his word and for not praying. Now, when I do that, do I call it pride? I should. Because that's exactly what it is, no matter what we call it. You see, it's easy for us to tell each other that we had a hard week, and that's why we didn't meet with God in his word consistently. Have you ever come, had anyone come up to you and confess, oh, friend, I struggled with arrogant pride this week, and that's why I neglected God? I haven't. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that to me, but you know what? That's true. I want you to understand this. Busyness is not the sin. I'm not saying that because we all lead busy lives. Here's the picture frame around the words I'm going to, to say to you. It's using busyness as an excuse for neglecting my time in the word. That's it. See, that doesn't mean it's not challenging and that you're going to have obstacles, varying obstacles. We all do for getting in the word. But listen, when I use busyness as an excuse, you know what? I'm prideful. Why? Here it is. Because I'm telling God, God, I know better than you about what my heart needs today. Ouch, right? I want you to think about that iceberg again. 
We only see a small fraction of it sticking out of the water, but you can be certain of one thing, a large part of it, a large percentage is lurking beneath the water and that part is even more dangerous than the part you can see. It's more dangerous because you don't know exactly how deep it goes or how wide it is, right? But you know what you do know? It's sustaining and supporting the entire part of what you do see. So that's the part of what's so tricky about rooting pride out of our lives. Because pride wears a lot of different, let's call them faces. There are a lot of depths and a lot of layers to it. And you have to be ready to just stop and take a breath and dive under the surface and be sure you're identifying the real thing. See, because if you can understand the principle in this one area, ladies, it's going to help you root out pride when it manifests itself in other areas. So let's talk about that woman who's neglecting her time in the Word. Let's really get this. So what's the tip of the iceberg? The visible sin. See, remember, it's not being busy. Remember, everyone is busy, right? It's using it as an excuse. That's the tip for not spending time in the Word. Another way we could say it is failing to prioritize time in the Word. But let's dive under the surface a little bit and see another layer. Here it is. She's forgetting God. That's what she's doing. Let's dive deeper, and let's see the root. Pride. See, because in essence, that woman is operating out of the belief that she knows better than God what she needs to be doing with her time and with her priorities and what her heart needs. Do you hear me? This woman does not truly believe that what's in her heart's best interest is feasting on God's word. See, that woman is foolish. She thinks she's immune to danger and that she can handle life on her own without spending time with her creator today. I'll do that tomorrow. I'll be fine if I just skip one day. See, there's danger in steering your thoughts toward that belief. So don't let yourself ignore the warning. You can't run your car on yesterday's gas, right? Same thing. It's so in my in my own life, when I'm tempted, and believe me, it happens, to put off my Bible reading, you know, I have to parent my heart at that minute, become the mom. And I have to take my thoughts captive, you know, arrest them, read them their rights, thoughts. You have the right to remain silent. And then I handcuff them. And then I have to tell myself, self, what my heart needs more than anything, more than those 800 things on my to-do list, what my heart needs more than anything is to meet with my God in his word. That's it. See, you and I might not always recognize what is dangerously lurking under the surface of the visible sin. There are many, many times what's lurking there, it's pride. 
So when we return from break, we're going to look at all or at some of the faces of pride so that we can better understand how to battle pride. So next on our outline, we're on page 3, 2 Chronicles 26, and we're going to read about a king named Isaiah. We're going to read, uh, start in verse 1, and we're going to jump around a bit. <coughs> Excuse me. So 26, 1, 2 Chronicles. All the people of Judah took Isaiah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. All right, let's go to verse 4. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God, and as long and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. So now, um, verses six through fifteen. They're just describing all kinds of victories and achievements. And verse 7 then tells us why he was victorious. It says, because God helped him. And then if you jump to verse 15b, it says, Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped. By whom? Look at verse 7. God helped him, right? God helped him until he was strong. See, he was marvelously helped by God. Okay, and then what happened? He became strong. And, verse 16, when he became strong, his heart was so proud. Remember pride? It's the overflow of the heart. It's the same danger we saw in Deuteronomy and in Hosea. Success is very dangerous to our hearts. Verse 16 says, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now you might be asking yourself, okay, so how is entering the incense to burn altar corrupt? How is that being unfaithful? To the Lord does not just mean oh he loves the Lord uh uh-uh. uh you know it's good to ask questions like that it really is and so almost all the time you find the answer in the verse next to it or a few verses down so let's keep reading verse 17 then Azariah the priest entered after him and with him 80 priests of the Lord valiant men bouncers can you can you picture that Eighty valiant men, they opposed Isaiah the king and said to him, and here is why we see why Isaiah's actions were so prideful. They say, it is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord. Who's it for? It's for the priests, right? The sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from God. Why was Isaiah unfaithful to God? See, he overstepped the boundaries of authority, didn't he? And who established those boundaries? God, right? See, remember way back in Deuteronomy 17? Remember? Before break? (laughs) Way back. (laughs) 
He was supposed to read the law every day, wasn't he? In the presence of the Levitical priests. So he should have known that service for the temple was reserved for those priests, the descendants of Aaron, and for not for him. See, Isaiah was not qualified. It was not his to take. And then the Bible says he acted out of angry pride when his sin was called out. Ouch. All right, how about me, though? How about me? Am I tempted to grasp authority which hasn't been given to me? See, are you tempted to work around your boss or your parents or your husband? You know, I know I am. It's tempting. Thinking, well, I'll do it, and then I'll just ask forgiveness, you know, instead of permission. We've heard somebody say that. Maybe you've said it. You know, we just assume they'd be okay with us deciding for ourselves and rather than us humbling ourselves and thinking, what would honor God in this situation? Hmm. And then going to our husband, a boss, our teacher, our parents, maybe the elders or your small group leader, and asking for their leadership, their permission, or their guidance. See, it could be that Isaiah thought he was entitled because, after all, he was king. And the Lord really hadn't taken away any other privileges from him. So why shouldn't he take leadership and worship too? But you know what? He wasn't entitled. Okay, so we're still hamming it up. So we've got to be asking ourselves, always looking inward here, do I ever do that? Ladies, it's so easy for us to have an attitude of entitlement. Like, I'm entitled to something for myself. I'm entitled to some me time, some appreciation, some respect. See, here's what we need to see in our hearts, and this is what it is. It's how I react right here in my heart when I'm not treated the way I want to be treated. It's how I react right here when I experience thoughtlessness from someone else, like when someone's rude, like a customer, a clerk, that guy in the store, or that guy who took my parking place at Costco, right? It displays itself in the attitude that we think we deserve, and then you fill in the blank. Remember those gray and blue circles way back Tom Angstead talk, talked about in that shepherding your heart versus listening to your heart lesson? See, when we become frustrated, remember, or disappointed or discouraged or in despair or in without peace, why do we do that? We do that because we've allowed our desires to become objects that we think we deserve, right? And then finally... We begin demanding that we get them. And that is only the tip of the iceberg. Because what's lurking underneath? All these evidences are evidences of pride. Because we think what we want is more important than what God wants and what he's called us to do. Okay, And what has he called us to do? Dying to ourself and following Christ. See, any time we put ourselves first, that's pride. And you can see it the same with fear. 
Because when we allow ourselves to become fearful, can that be a symptom of pride? Can it? Think about it. Yeah. Because we're really, when we allow ourselves to be fearful, we're telling God, God, you're not big enough to handle that problem. Do you see? That situation. Yikes. That's prideful. Are you beginning to see how this applies in a lot of different areas in your life? You can start identifying pride and start rooting it out. So to help us identify our own pride, I'm going to ask us some questions. And you got this handout. It's called 41 Evidences of Pride. It's one of the sheets you got. It's from Nancy DeMoss. There's a lot of evidences. And you're going to have some ch- a chance to look at all of them. And in your homework, you can circle them, do whatever. Um, we're not going to take the time to look at all of them today. Um, and some of them are pretty obvious. Like if you look at number one, it says um, looking down on those less educated, less affluent, less refined, less successful. You know, that's pretty obvious that that's an evidence of pride, right? But I'm going to highlight a few less evident, at least they were to me, less evident evidences. (laughs) Um, Like look at number eight. Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? Interesting. How about nine? Are you argumentative? Or 11? Do you have a touchy, sensitive spirit, easily offended? Get your feelings hurt easily? Hmm. How about 15? Do you have a hard time sharing your real spiritual needs and struggles with others? I thought this was interesting. Look at 17. Are you excessively shy? Or 18. Do you have a hard time reaching out and being friendly to people you don't know at church? Or 20. Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Yeah. Or 21, are you a perfectionist? Do you get irked or impatient with people who aren't? Those of you who are perfectionists will chuckle at that one. How about 23? Do you frequently interrupt people when they are speaking? Yeah, I'm really guilty of that. Does your 24, does your husband or you can insert friend feel intimidated by your quote-unquote spirituality? Be careful. How about 26? Do you often complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, your church? Or 32, do you get hurt if your accomplishments and or acts of service are not recognized or rewarded? Or 37, do you avoid being around certain people because you feel inferior compared to them? You don't feel you measure up? Or 39, Is it hard for you to let others know when you need help, practical, or spiritual? (laughs) 41. Are you sitting here thinking how many of these questions apply to someone else? (laughs) Ouch, ouch, ouch. A lot of those were ouchies. So has your picture of arrogance and pride changed since we started this lesson? Are you now the poster child (laughs) for pride in your mind's eye? You know, we need to remind ourselves pride is something we all struggle with, right? We do. But here's some great news. Okay, time for the good news. Because, you know, on the side where you are fighting sin, if you can get at the root of that sin, 
and you go after the right sin, you might actually make ground in battling other sins. So because one sin is tied to another, you know, they, they bring your friends along. Here's an idea. Let's us bring our friends along. Let's bring each other along and agree that we're going to help each other try to find the sin behind the sin to see what's lurking beneath the surface and to see our hearts. Let's do that for each other. Discipline three. All right, let's look at um, 2 Chronicles 32. Next on your outline, 24 through 26. 2 Chronicles 32, 24 through 26. In those days, Hezekiah became, became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a, and the NIV says, a miraculous sign. Verse 25, but Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. Now the NIV says he did not respond to the kindness shown him because his heart was proud. Okay, so here's another face of pride, ladies not responding to kindness shown. All right, let's look in the mirror. Okay, let's do another ham. How might I fail to respond to God's kindness? Hmm. Now, I want you to please write down Romans 2.4. Because at the end of Romans 2.4, it says that kindness of God leads us to repentance. It's important. Are you quick to repent, or do you hate admitting sin? Do you ask forgiveness when you've sinned against someone, or when your sin has affected someone else in some way, or do we ignore it? Do we forget about it? Do we think, well, enough time has passed, and she really doesn't seem that upset, so why bring it up now, right? Let's just move on. I'm pointing the finger at myself because I've said that. I've thought that to myself. See, behaving that way, it's not as simply as just thinking, well, I'm just, I hate uncomfortable situations, and I'm just going to avoid that. Because if I keep diving under the surface, okay, behaving that way, that's failure for me to repent. And failure to repent is failure to respond to God's kindness. You see that? Wow. So at the root, it's pride. It's a prideful heart. Now, look at the consequences of a prideful heart in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 25. Here they are. The wrath, therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. See, Hezekiah's prideful heart, it didn't just affect him. It affected everyone around him, just like the captain of the Titanic, right? See, that captain arrogantly dismissed repeated warnings. And look at the impact his actions had. That ship started sinking and over 15,000 souls were lost that day. How about me? Do I recognize the impact of my pride on, has on others? And how might others experience consequences from my sin? You know, but there's encouragement to be found here, too. I don't just want to be the Debbie Downer this morning. Look at the encouragement. Verse 26. 
However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. Okay, so who humbled it? Hezekiah did. See, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Isn't that encouraging? See, God was willing to turn his wrath in the face of repentance. And the hope of believers, of us who live after the cross, is that Christ bore God's righteous wrath against our pride, didn't he? He gave us a new heart, too, so that we can repent when we do have pride. Now we're going to see another face of pride. And this one is just as serious. And this is um, in Obadiah. Now you can look up that Jeremiah verse later. But we're going to be in Obadiah. And both Obadiah and Jeremiah, their prophecy against the country of Edom. So Obadiah 4 is, um, I'm sorry, Obadiah is four books, if you're looking for it. It's four books after Daniel. So it's Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Obadiah is addressing the Edomites. You know, Edomites were very arrogant people. They thought they were invincible. They had an imposing, impregnable city called Petra. You may have heard of it. Now, Petra was situated high, high in the mountains. And I want you to imagine with me deep, terrifying gorges emanating from peaks. 6,000 feet surrounding her. Pretty impressive, right? It was like a fortress. So they had a real false sense of security. And in my research, I found this quote. It says, from their home within this natural mountain fortress, the Edomites were free to wage war however and whenever they wished. And yet, despite Edom's seemingly impregnable defenses and military alliances, Edom was brought to nothing and abandoned. Let's read what God says about the Edomites. Obadiah 1, verses 2 through 3. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling places, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? And what caused their deception? Do you see it in verse 3? The arrogance of their heart. See, Edom's arrogant question, who will bring me down? It's, it's answered, isn't it, in verse 4. God's solemn resolve, I will bring you down. See, we must remember that the heart is easily deceived, and it's the most excellent of deceivers. And now to add to our difficulties, we have pride deceiving our hearts. Yikes! Right? Look at how deceived those Edomites were. God is saying he will bring them down. And yet they persisted in self-confidence, didn't they? In self-reliance. So here we see proof that an arrogant heart of a deceived heart is believing your own words over God's words. Remember Genesis 3, the technique that the serpent used to cause Eve to doubt? Remember when he challenged her, Indeed, has God said you shall not? 
Another way of saying that would be, did God really say? Isn't that what today's culture screams at us every day? Did God really say that? See, that's another reason why we must know God. Not God who you think, but God as he has revealed himself in the word. We must. And what he says, how about me? In what ways do I trust my own opinions, my own experiences, instead of God's word? See, trusting in our own experiences, that's all we did before we trusted Christ. And trusting our own opinions is prideful. The world in which we live loves to mock God, loves to trust in anything but God, psychology, self-help, man's ability to solve its own problems. You see how dangerous a prideful heart is? We must stop often and examine it and examine you've got to ask yourself okay how much of that world's philosophy is creeping into my thought process right now we must remember that a deceptive that deceptiveness of pride ladies it's especially hard to do battle with because the nature of deception is it's deceptive (laughs) And the only way you can battle it is with truth. Not any truth. Truth of God's word. The truth. The whole truth. Nothing but the truth. So help you God. There's protection in shepherding your heart with God's word. Isn't that great? There's protection. And with being concerned with another shepherd her heart as well. Remember, above all else, guard your heart. So in order to battle pride, we can pray, Lord, show me, show me where I tend to be arrogant, where I'm prone to sense of entitlement. And God, give me eyes to see. See, we need God for this. We need to ask him for this. Because it's so easy to see pride in others. That's the effect sin has on us, right? It blinds us to our own pride. It makes us so good at seeing it in you and you and you. (laughs) And then it makes us judgmental in others. Hang on, though. Hang on, there's good news. Okay, because just as there are many evidences of pride... There are also many evidences of opposite of pride. Things we can look for, strive for, long for, and be encouraged by. And what's the opposite of pride? Humility. So let's take a look at what God's word says about cultivating humility. And that's number three on your outline. How can we define humility? Let's look at two impactful quotes on your notes. I'm going to read them real fast, but I want you to please look at them later because they are impactful. A.W. Tozer says, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. In himself, nothing. In God, 
everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him. And he has stopped caring. William Law says humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. Great. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's interesting, isn't it? He says, all of you, clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So humility is something we get to live out in relationships. See, left to ourselves, ladies, we're not going to see our need for humility. We just won't. That's why we get to get criticized (laughs) and rebuked and admonished. It's a gift. (laughs) Because it's so easy to feel hurt or misunderstood or defensive, right? But that's pride, isn't it? As if, you know what, feeling good about ourselves is more important than seeing areas where we need to grow. Hmm. See, the passage continues, verse 6. Therefore, and I love this, we all know this one, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You've got to humble yourself first, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Here's how Peter shows us how to humble ourselves. Here it goes. We know this one, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. See, he calls us to humble ourselves by accepting the care that he is giving you right now. See, you know what pride does? It rejects that care God is giving you right now because it's not the kind of care you think he should be giving you. So when we're proud, we've lost sight of Jesus Christ and our dependence on him. But when we humble ourselves, we find strength in God's all-sufficient grace. C.J. Mahaney said about this verse, and it's on your outline, where there's worry, pride is at the root of it. And listen closely here. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. Wow. And so the solution is to humble ourselves, right? Where? Under the best place you could, under God's mighty hand, verse 6. And when we need to humble ourselves before somebody, this is a good thing to remember. When you need to confess sin or when you're criticized, I know it's not comfortable. Nobody loves that. But here's what we should do. We should look beyond that person. That's very helpful. Look beyond that person. Look to the mighty God. He cares for you. He's the one that's hum- that you should be humbling yourself to. He's the one who is at work in you for your good. And that leads us to have an accurate view of ourselves and of our Savior. 
See, not only will a humble heart draw us to our Savior, you know what else it does? It draws us closer to each other. And so let's look at Colossians 3.12. Colossians 3.12. We're going to look at 12 to 14. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, see, Paul starts with our gospel identity. We're chosen of God, holy and and beloved. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another, verse 13, and forgiving each other. Whoever has complained against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should. Behold, all these things, I'm sorry, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. We're going to look at just a few things. These same things show up together often in the New Testament. First, I want you to notice that the command to be humble is grounded in our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. What we must remember if we're to wage war with pride and cultivate humility, we must feed our hearts on a steady diet of the gospel. We must. We must view it as a precious jewel. We must never tire of looking at all of its lovely facets. The more we behold its beauty, the more we're going to be enthralled by it. See, humility grows out of a heart that cherishes the gospel. And preaching the gospel to yourself, preaching the gospel to myself, helps your humility grow. Wow. Here's one last quote. It's from the Gospel Primer. So you probably have this at home. Look it up sometime. Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing, nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place, and also the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death. It's always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of hell I deserve. That's on page 28. The second thing we don't want to miss is humility serves a greater purpose. It's assen- it is essential for building unity and love between builders, between believers. And that displays the work of the gospel. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus gave a new commandment for us to love one another as he loved us. Why? So that the world may know we are his disciples. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want the world to look at us? And as we remember, we're not our own, we're his slaves. And he's entrusted us with the great treasure, the treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross. 
to pay for sins. And we can now walk in newness of life. And we can live with each other in a way that the world would say, wow, that's not normal. I mean, they love each other. And they're serving each other. And they're not just serving each other kind of half-heartedly. They're serving each other joyfully, lovingly, humbly. Wow. (laughs) That kind of living in homes and in church, it adorns the gospel. It puts Christ on display. It declares the power that the gospel makes has to make us more like Christ, what we would never be apart from Christ. So in closing, we must battle pride, ladies, we must. And to battle pride, we have to be on the lookout for its many faces, right? These are things we must bring to the cross. These are things for which Christ died. Let them go. Repent. And follow him. See, that's how we humble ourselves. We draw near to the cross where we find glorious hope for living with each other in unity and for displaying the characteristics of humility. We've learned about a lot of characteristics of pride. Let's end with some characteristics of humility. Compassion. Kindness. Gentleness. What else? Patience, right? Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. I'm sure you could come up with many more on your own. I want to close us in prayer. Pray with me, please. Psalm 76, 7 through 12 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Thank you, Lord, for a refuge that you have ready for us. Because we are made right in Christ. They drink their fill of abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. Lord, thank you that you give us to drink from your word every day. Lord, let us really realize how thirsty we are. And let us drink deeply from your word every day. Verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Verse 11, let not the foot of pride come upon me. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Lord, I'm so thankful that nothing can drive us away. Nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, you've given us the tools to see when the foot of pride is trying to come against us. Let us just know how to fight against that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.